Microphone check. One, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check. Good. Sounds good. One, two, three. Rolling and. We have to show something that there is no footage and our options are recreations and just doesn't fit. And animation was just immediately the go-to. You know, you just have to have the audacity to try to try things. I mean, that's really how anything gets made in this industry is to just have the audacity to try to do it. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 123, and it is brought to you by Athos, where you are just a few clicks away from protecting yourself and your film gear. Athos, your entertainment insurance experts. It is January 27th as I record this which is actually two weeks before this episode is to be released. By the time that you hear this episode, we're either just finishing up our time in Cambodia or we're back and relocated to the States. Our visas run out in mid-February, so we've had some big decisions to make, namely whether or not to leave Cambodia for good. Basically, it's either leave the country and come back in on new visas. Actually, not a difficult thing to do in Cambodia. We could just cross over into Thailand and then back into Cambodia on the same day. Or we could leave and finish the edit of the film outside of Cambodia. We have chosen the latter. Now, this wasn't an easy decision to make, of course. We have had much to consider between the film, producing the podcast, the Documentary Academy, figuring out what and where is going to work longer term for our family, etc., etc. A lot of thinking has gone into how 2020 and beyond is going to look for the Parkhurst family. I tell you this because I'm making my segment for today's episode a bit shorter than usual. Honestly, we've got a lot on our plates. It's a bit difficult to put my mind to writing a proper podcast segment for you this week. That being said, I wanted to make sure that I got an episode out to you. And so here we are. And believe me, I've got a kick-ass conversation coming up for you in a few moments. And so in advance, like two weeks in advance, I want to thank you for cutting me a little slack with this episode. I'll be back with a solid segment in two weeks' time. Until then, wish my family and I luck as we finish things up here in Cambodia and make our way back to the States, or in fact, are already back in the States. It is quite a journey, this doc life, isn't it? I look forward to sharing more of this with you as we continue moving forward here on The Documentary Life. Over the years, I can't tell you how many times I've received an email or seen someone post in the TDL Community Facebook group asking about gear insurance. And until this past year, I never really had a simple answer. Sometimes people were taking additional renter's insurance on their house or working with insurance professionals who are not versed specifically in entertainment insurance and end up getting incorrect coverage. But where was the insurance that was tailored to the independent filmmaker who simply needed some coverage on their gear? Who could cover the independent filmmaker's hefty personal and professional investments? Well, thankfully, now I do have a simple answer for you. They're called Athos. 
and they are led by insurance industry pros, Kat Wong and Eileen Villarin. They're based out of Los Angeles, California, so not surprisingly, have been working with film people and production companies for many, many years. Steph and I discovered them a little over a year ago when some friends highly recommended their proprietary gear insurance program, and we've been nothing but happy with Athos. They also provide all lines of coverages related to the entertainment industry, such as general liability, workers' comp, and errors and emissions. This makes it easy to go to them for all our filmmaking needs. And whenever we've had a question about our policy, the entire Athos team has been prompt with their responses. We've emailed with them. We've talked on the phone with them. They are professional and they are courteous and they get film insurance. And that's huge for us. It's very comforting to have a human connection with a business like this. We want to know that they will have our back should the event come where we need them. Now, are they sponsoring this ad? Yes. But are we pretty selective about who we have on as a sponsor? I think you know the answer to that is also yes. We will not bring on a sponsor that we don't think can benefit you, Doc Lifer. And Athos won't just benefit you. They are the best at what they do, and they can assist you with all your filmmaking insurance needs. So don't go another day without protecting your film gear assets. Head on over to AthosInsurance.com today and get an instant quote. It will take you less than 10 minutes for gear insurance. You can purchase immediately or wait to discuss with an Athos team member. The website again for more information on services and to get a quote today is AthosInsurance.com. You've got to protect yourself, Doc Lifer. Go to AthosInsurance.com today. Over the past couple of months, we've been receiving emails. We've been active on the TDL Community Facebook group, and we've been having one-on-one -on -one conversations with you. And I'm happy to say that once again, Doc Lifer, we have heard you. Earlier this month, we gave our first live workshop. It was the Going Solo With Your Documentary Filmmaking Workshop. The response was overwhelming. It seems that we touched a chord with some of you, but I'm not surprised. So many of us doc filmmakers are doing the solo doc filmmaking thing these days or are about to attempt it for the first time. And anyone who's done the solo doc filmmaking thing knows that it is not an endeavor that should be taken lightly. If you haven't done it yet, it will probably be one of, if not the most challenging things that you'll ever do in your life. But it can also be one of the most gratifying, life-altering journeys of your life as well. Which is why I run this workshop. I can help you transform this deeply challenging journey into the kind of life-shifting experience that it deserves to be. And I can do this when we again run the Going Solo with Your Documentary Filmmaking Workshop, which is on Monday, February 17th, where you will participate in a live interactive environment with other solo doc filmmakers like yourself. And this event, of course, will be led by yours truly, someone who, let's just say, knows a thing or two about the solo doc filmmaking thing. We will delve into the world of making your documentary film with little to no crew. I'll discuss advantages and disadvantages of going it solo. We'll go through an essential gear list and a night before the shoot checklist that I've put together to make your going solo a bit more streamlined and efficient so that you can concentrate on what matters most making your best documentary film. In this workshop, I will transform your shooting, your interviewing, and your sound abilities. And I will help you better understand your funding options as a solo doc filmmaker. And I will help you become and stay more connected to a doc filmmaking community so that you can feel less isolated and alone in your solo doc filmmaking ventures. If going solo with your documentary filmmaking is something you've been wanting to do or simply get much better at, you can register today by going to thedocumentarylife.com slash workshops.
If you're a one-person crew, this is the doc filmmaking course that will seriously alter not only your approach in doc filmmaking, but also the way in which people will experience your doc films. Don't lose your seat. I've one earmarked just for you. But this workshop filled up quickly the last time out, and I'm anticipating more of the same. So I would not wait. Secure your spot today in the Going Solo with Your Documentary Filmmaking Workshop at thedocumentarylife.com slash workshops. Become your best solo doc filmmaker today at thedocumentarylife.com slash workshops. I'd like to welcome onto the program today, documentary filmmaker Joshua Real. Joshua, I feel like I should say at the outset, just so we know where we stand, before we even get started, I'm a massive hockey fan. Secondly, I am a massive Buffalo Sabres fan, since this is where okay. I am from. And and my wife, who's the producer on the, on the program, uh, made me swear that we would talk primarily about doc filmmaking and not geek too much <laughs> out about hockey. So I'm going to ask you to hold me to that. <laughs> Joshua, well, welcome to the Documentary Life Podcast, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, so Joshua, how did you first come to documentary? Share a little bit about your early story, about how documentary came to be something for you. Well, you know, I grew up kind of out in the country when I was really little, and we'd get to go to the video. It was the video hut, actually, uh, <laughs> and pick out one, you know, one VHS to watch for the weekend. My sister and I, and I was always picking out National Geographic nature documentaries. Ah. So that seed was planted really young, and then you know, we we moved to Port Huron, Michigan, which is this little city about an hour north of Detroit yeah. on the uh, border of U.S. and, and Canada, oh, yeah. off of Lake Huron. You know, I, I fell in rock and roll and all the things that you do when you're a teenager. And <laughs> my first paid film gig was to go out on OzFest in 2000 and film uh, my buddy's band Taproot, just sort of as a documentary type project. <laughs> so I got, a, I got a real taste for that. Um, and then I was in a car accident afterwards. And when I got back from there after I graduated high school and kind of derailed my life for a little bit. But, you know, the, the idea of telling Doc documentaries was really and still really young and so once I kind of overcame three back surgeries over six years I went to film school at University of Texas at Austin primarily Uh, because they had a really you know great doc program in addition to a great narrative program and so I kind of I would have an opportunity to sort of dip my toe into both both of those uh, aspects of storytelling Mm -hmm. and were you down in Austin for a while or were you just down there for for your college years or did you stay and immerse yourself in the community at all yeah, no, I, I actually I was in Austin until I moved back to Detroit, yeah. specifically to find financing for the Russian Five. Ah, uh, ah, so yeah, I I was really blessed to, you know, Paul Steckler, who's an, an incredible professor and mentor and filmmaker, um, does a lot of you know really political political science type documentaries. Uh, he kind of took me under his wing for a minute, and then I got really really lucky, uh, blessed to be able to work with Al Reiner, who directed For All Mankind, yeah. for uh, basically Al's last two films. Um, ah, okay. Unreal Dream, the Michael Morton story, and then uh, the John James Audubon documentary we did. And, and Al was actually working on a, 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 another film, a follow-up to For All Mankind, uh, when he passed away. But I had moved back to Detroit 
actually at his encouragement, mm. um, he threatened to stop hiring me uh, while we were making the Audubon film if I did not try to pursue my own. Great advice. That's <laughs> like that's a tough one, right? You want to stay working with a mentor, but at the same time, they're saying, "Hey, look, it's time for you to go out on your own and find your own voice." That's that's fabulous. I love it. I love it. So you're gonna forgive me here for a moment, and 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 yeah. and correct me if I'm I'm, I'm totally wrong here, and because I'm only judging by the little that I know from the research that I've done, which is to say that mm. I've read some articles and I've looked on your yeah. IMDb page. There's not a ton of production or documentary experience, uh, in, certainly in terms of your own films that I could find. And so my question is, how on earth does one, and I mean this with all due respect and and yeah. excitement, by the way, how on earth could you possibly have the audacity to think that you could make a documentary about five players in the National Hockey League? Well, you know, the truth is, is working with Al, yeah. uh, it really... I mean, it was a crack. It was a master's in documentary filmmaking. Mm. And it, it, if anyone is fortunate enough to have met Al, um, he was just a story genius. And so he let me ride shotgun with him on, on both of those films. Wow. And I just absorbed so much, um, you know, and I, and I had done some other work, some short stuff. And, you know, I, I just felt I was ready for it. And I, and honestly, I felt like if I wasn't going to do this movie now, yeah. It was never going to get done. No one else was trying to tell the story. Uh, it's a very personal story to me. And I mean, I guess, you know, you just have to have the audacity to try to try things. Yeah. I mean, that's really how anything gets made in this industry yeah. is to just have the audacity to try to do it. And, you know, fortunately for me, I was able to put together a really fantastic team. And, you know, there's some ups and downs, but I eventually I ended up with an incredible editor, uh, David Fabello, uh, back in Austin, Texas, actually, where yeah. we finished the and yeah, you know, it, it was just a, a trial and error kind of experience, but I'm really happy with the results. You mentioned that this was a very personal doc for you. How is that the case? Well, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I was in this car accident when I was 19 and, you know, I had one surgery on my spine and yeah, you know, it, it didn't really take. And so then I had to have another surgery and there was scar tissue and all this, all this stuff. And, you know, I, I'm like 23, 24 years old instead yeah. of, you know, being in college and doing things that 23, 24 year olds do. I was, you know, laid up in pain watching movies and, and, and hoping to get back to life. And, and I was really depressed. And my grandparents got me a Constantinov jersey for Christmas. Yep. There it is. And Vladimir <laughs> Constantinov through this. Yeah. You know, for me, it was a, and I don't know if this was their intention, but for me, it was this moment of like, wow, okay, Vladdy went through so much worse. Hmm. And he didn't give up on himself. He persevered through it with a smile on his face. I need to stop being a little baby. I need to like get it together, figure out what I'm going to do about this and, and persevere. And so we found a surgeon who was able to fix me up, uh, third surgery. And I just did PT for like a year and a half, mm. just super, super intense. And then I was, you know, well enough to kind of resume my life. Okay. So there's, a, there's certainly going to be a contingent of our audience who has no idea who Vladimir Konstantinov is. So give us a little bit of context about who he is, what happened to him and how that inspired you. Yeah. So without spoiling too much yeah. of the movie, you know, Vladimir <laughs> right. uh, was one of the greatest defensemen in the history of the National Hockey League, as far as I'm concerned, just an incredible human being um, who, you know, he, he came over here really grew into this superstar. And after the Red Wings won the Stanley Cup in 1997, uh, six days later, there was this really tragic limo accident where his life was forever changed. And he would never play hockey again, but they also didn't think he was going to live through the night. Right. And I, 
you know, I'm happy to say that he's still alive today and he's yeah. seen the movie and he loves it. Um, and it kind of reinvigorates his memory and mind about who he was and, and what he accomplished. So, you know, to me, like that's one of the greatest compliments uh, any storyteller, any yeah. documentary filmmaker could ever have. When you haven't won a Stanley Cup for 40 years, I don't care how much talent you may or may not have. You're an underdog. The team I took over in 1982 was in the Detroit River, quite frankly. I don't mean to be rude or anything, but you don't have any kind of a hockey club. I knew that there were good players in Russia. The problem was there was an iron curtain. There's no book, you know, you couldn't go anywhere and say, okay, how do you get a guy to defect? I knew one guy that spoke Russian. I get to Helsinki, they notice a guy, I'm convinced he was their KGB guy. Literally, we're making up as we went along. I said, Sergey, this money's yours if you leave now. It was interesting for me, it was like a little bit exciting. My home phone rings, and it's some guy from the State Department. Do you know the whereabouts of Sergey Fedorov? To which I basically said, yes. So the Russian Five is about the Detroit Red Wings sort of zany plan to end their long-standing, decades-long Stanley Cup drought by drafting and defecting Soviet hockey players sort of at the higher, well, actually, I guess it was sort of at the tail end of the Cold War. Yeah. And once they got those five guys, then they all had to kind of become a team and sort of look beyond each other's differences and, and you know, the commie and all this sort of thing to really become a family in order to kind of achieve their goal. And how do you, Joshua, how did you start gaining this special access that's clearly required to do a sports doc about a professional team in the U.S.? How do you start gaining access to these guys? Well, you know, it's funny because I wrote handwritten letters wow. to everyone that was involved. And it's sort of like a message in a bottle. I kind of threw them all out and, and just, you know, email or not email, but addresses that I could find on Google. And fortunately for me, I was in Austin, Texas, and Jim Lights, who at the time was the president of the Dallas yeah, Stars, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who, who was really intricately involved in the story, gave me a phone call and said, you know, hey, if you're serious about this, why don't you drive up I-35? Let's have a chat, and uh, I want to hear what, what you're about. Oh, my God. And so I did. And so through that conversation, I, I convinced Jim to jump on board, and then he gave me some other contact numbers, and then I reached out to those folks, and slowly I started to build trust amongst the people yeah. uh, that I needed to talk to. And uh, Ken Holland, who was at the time the general manager of the Detroit Red Wings, <laughs> you know, was like, well, if you're home for Christmas, let's have a cup of coffee. And fortunately for me, at this time, the NHL was in a lockout. So all of these guys had nothing to do. <laughs> yeah. So the timing was perfect, and you know, I, I got the ball rolling, and then that next year, was, I'd actually prefer if you said you got the puck dropped. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, we weren't there yet, though. You know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. We were. We had laced up the skates. Let's use that. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> but but uh, I was home for Christmas, and you know, I I went to Ken Holland. I was like, I need access to the Winter Classic. Um, they were doing an alumni game outdoors. Yeah, and all of the Russians were going to be there, and I'll never forget it. Ken Holland called in uh, his. Director of Communications, Todd Beam. And he said, Todd, you know what? Joshua and I had uh, coffee last year. He wants to make a documentary about the Russian Five, and he hasn't given up yet. So I think we should help him. <laughs> what a message for doc filmmakers all over, man. I love yeah. it. <laughs> so 
you know, that got us access to the to the locker room. And then we had a kind of a handler, someone who had a bit of a relationship with the Russians during the playing period that I asked to introduce me. Yeah. And then I pitched the guys the film. And, you know, Slava Fatisov right away said, if you come to Moscow, I'll give you all the time you need. <laughs> and Slava Kozlov was like, sure, I'll sign, whatever. Um, so Which, by the way, is kind of amazing to me because I'm sure, of course, you're well aware and have seen the, the doc uh, Red Army. Uh, my impression yeah. watching that, and I don't know this about him, but my impression watching that and the way he was in interviews, I just felt like access to that guy must have been very difficult. He did not seem like he really wanted to be interviewed at all. But when I watched yours, I, I didn't see yeah. that. I didn't see that that was the case at all. So tell me about that. Well, <laughs> So I'll, I'll jump ahead to that because, yeah. you know, eventually I got the money to, to get the film made. And our first major trip was to go to Moscow, yeah. as Slava Fatisov said, you know, come to Moscow and I'll give you all the time in the world. And, you know, when we got on the plane, yep. we had promises to, to interview from him, Slava Kozlov and Sergei Fedorov. But we did not have dates. We did not have times. <laughs> we did not have anything specific. Leave and the faith. They came through on their word. Wow. And Slava was the first one. And, I, you know, funny story is that he calls us about two hours before the interview. And he says, you know, we can't do it in my office. Uh, there's construction. <laughs> You've got two hours to find a new spot to do this interview. And, you know, I, I'm in Moscow. I don't speak Russian. I'm like, uh. <laughs> and my, one of our producers, Raisa, she goes, well, hold on. Uh, I got an idea. Well, actually, I should say our executive, it was our executive producer, Dan Milstein's idea. Hmm. He mentioned, you know, there's this amazing shot of Moscow with the Kremlin in the background from the rooftop bar of the Ritz-Carlton downtown Moscow. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that sounds amazing, but yeah. come on. Yeah, right, right, right. Anyone who's, you know, anyone who's shot docs and interviews knows that, you know, that kind of hotel, that last minute, it's just. Good luck. <laughs> but Raisa got on the phone and she rang him up and she talked to him for a little bit. And the next thing I know, we're all in, in a taxi headed towards the Ritz-Carlton Moscow. Yeah. And what she told them was Slava's coming and yep. he's bringing his good friend Vladimir Putin with him. So you need to clear the bar and prepare for us. No and way. <laughs> by the time the bar staff realized that Putin was not coming, yeah. it was just Slava. It was too late. We were already set up. Slava was there. We're shooting. <laughs> and, and so for Slava, you know, he shut up. He was angry because he had to drive through Moscow traffic and rush out. Oh, God. Which is... And another brilliant move by Dan Milstein was, hey, Josh, to tell Slava why you're making this movie. Mm. Soon as I told him my personal story and yeah. the connection, with him, I just saw that anger just fade away in his eyes. And he just put his arm around me and goes, OK, buddy, let's do this. Yeah, it's fantastic. And that's how I got that you know, personal connection with him that I, I don't know that Gabe was able to get um, because just yeah. the relationship, you know, and anyone will tell you documentary filmmaking is a game of relationships. So fortunately for me, you know, I was able to to develop that with him. Let's back up a little bit. And you mentioned raising funds for the film. What was your approach to raising funds and how did you do that for the Russian Five? Well, so when I started this, I was living in Austin, Texas. Yeah. And Trying to raise money for a documentary film about Russian hockey players <laughs> in Austin, Texas, uh, was impossible. <laughs> and I tried for two years, and we tried every way we could think about. And got to go to Detroit, man. Well, that's what it really became. And I had a meeting with uh, Denise Illich, um, who she was like, you know, I don't know the first thing about documentary financing. Um, 
I'm not going to start. But if you come back here, well, I'll help you out. But why does a Texas filmmaker even want to tell this story? Hmm. And I realized that just like my current address was an obstacle uh... at the time. You know, the, the Illiches own the Fox Theater. And I was lucky enough to see Prince at the Fox that week <sighs> when he did his hit and run tour. And so, you know, Denise and I had talked about doing a benefit for Vladdy there. And so during Purple Rain, I had this epiphany of like, if I can somehow find a way to make this movie and not give up, where, you know, 5,000 fans are losing their mind for Prince right now, yeah. that can be Vladdy. That's like, right. I, I have the power to make that thing a reality. Yeah. And I, I just have to move home and try this. So I put everything up in storage. Yeah. And I saved what I thought was enough money for a year in Detroit, and <laughs> rents had increased. So it was like five months worth. Uh, by the time. And fortunately for me, a good buddy of mine, Rob Cosano, introduced me to what would become my lead producer, who would become my lead producer, <clears throat> Jenny Fedorovich. <clears throat> and, you know, Jenny herself is a Russian immigrant. Uh, she came over in 89, <laughs> about the same time Sergei Fedorov did. And, you know, the for her, the story was also personal. And so she said, I know one guy who I think might do this and I'm going to go to him. And if he says, yes, it's meant to be. And so we approached Dan Milstein, uh, Dan at the, po at that point in time was, uh, the player agent for Pavel Datsuk, who was the Red Wings <laughs> current Russian superstar. Yeah. Pavel's now retired, but Dan, since Pavel's retired has basically accumulated most of the Russians in the NHL as his clients. So for him, there, there was also a personal connection and, he jumped on board and he said, I'm in and he financed the whole thing, which, you know, is really kind of the dream for any oh. documentary. And it's not easy, you know, and, and it required some, some startup cash to shoot the teaser to get him on board. Yeah. Um, but you know, overall that, I mean, that was the strategy and, and, and Dan came in and he it was amazing. And, you know, you love to have an executive producer who, you know, so we have we are the champions in the film, right? Yeah, right. And we have it because there's a, like a really personal story moment that involves it, but yes. it still costs money, right? So the Queen gave us an incredible, <laughs> incredible deal, but still more than what we had in our licensing budget. Period. And was like, you know what? If it's the song you need, let's do it. And then, you know, then they were like, okay, well, it's X for the song. Yeah the rights for the song and why for the rights plus the original recording. Of course. And I'll never forget. We were talking to Dan's lawyer and he was like, well, you know, Joshua knows a lot of musicians. Why don't we just have a cover? And Dan mutes the phone call and he goes, you want the real thing, right? And I was like, well, yeah, of course. And he unmutes it and he goes, yeah, no, we'll just take it all. And so, you know, we were really blessed to just have an executive producer who was all in gave me the resources that I need to sort of fulfill my vision through. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, jumping ahead, like I'm incredibly lucky to have Jenny Fedorovich and Steve Banneton on board as producers to help the post-production release see it through because, you know, that's a role that I don't really know. I mm. didn't really learn Al Reiner mm. and we all kind of learned together and Jenny was just such a go-getter with that and wow. Steve as well. But, I was fortunate enough to surround myself with people who were determined to do the best job possible they could do at the task yeah. that was their responsibility. Yeah, so. man. And it seems like you were doing that from the very beginning, which is incredible. I, what a story of perseverance so so far, by the way. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, so many appropriate lessons. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
I would love to have a bit of a conversation now on the animation yeah. aspect yeah. of your doc yeah, film. Yeah. We don't talk a lot about animation much on the program, or we haven't to this point. And I think it needs it it needs some conversation. And I felt like, you know, both Steph and I, my wife and, and I, after viewing this, we thought, you know what, we definitely need to have some conversation with Joshua about this. When and why did you realize that you were going to use animation in this film about five Russian hockey players? As soon as I envisioned the film, honestly. Really? Um, I kind of despise recreations in documentaries. Uh, okay. um, I think they're rarely, rarely done well. Mm. Um, and, and when they are, they tend to feel dated after a little while. Mm. Um, and so for me, there was never any consideration of doing recreations. And, and we knew that there are these parts of the story where there is inherently no footage, right? There's right. no, there, there is no archival footage of cloak and dagger spy missions. My God. Welcome um, to my world, by the way, with our film. <laughs> right. You know, so it's like, all right, what, what is the challenge presented here? Yeah. All right. We have to show something that there is no footage and our options are recreations. Ah, not for this. Right. Yeah. Just doesn't fit. And animation was just, immediately the go-to and right away i was like it has to feel like a soviet cold war propaganda thing of course um and so we kind of were stuck in between the like the constructivist look that we went with and then a bit more of like the painterly poster look that you see in some of the soviet propaganda posters yeah. from the 50s, 40s 50s and 50s. and we actually went down that path first and we found this incredible artist from russia and he knocked out a couple samples, and we were like, we love it. Here's the shot list. And he freaked out and disappeared in the woods for like a, month, or like a week or something. Yeah. Because it was too much. Yeah. And so we couldn't, we couldn't do that. And then, you know, once we got the film back to Austin to finish post-production, uh, my post-producer, Jason Whaling, kind of sat with me, and we, we just really hashed out this, like, how do we achieve this vision? And you know, one thing that Jenny and I talked about early on was a sort of like comic book Sin City meets the propaganda poster thing. Right. Mm. And so when I kind of pitched that to Jason, I was like, this is kind of where we were at the beginning. Now we're in this other spot, but I think I want to go back to that. And Jason just sat down with me, whipped up Photoshop and just started putting things together. Yeah. And it was like, what about this? And I was like, yeah. And OK, let's do this and that. And so we were able to create a, a kind of a, a template for the vision. And we had a storyboard artist, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, David Knott, who actually is also from Port Huron. Him and I wow. just had these extensive long conversations over the phone about my visions for the scene. Uh, kind of how I would, you know, you would work through storyboarding a narrative film, honestly. Yeah, yeah. And he, he knocked out the storyboards and then we sent the storyboards and the vision book to these incredible animated animation artists in the Ukraine, or I should say in Ukraine. Mm. And so they were able to do all the, the drawings, the, you know, the photo real photo drawings. They did all of that. And then they sent the Photoshop layers back to Austin where we had an animator. What were they, can I ask you, what were they constructing yeah. those, the, 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 the sort of the realistic, what were they constructing those drawings in? How were they making those? I'm assuming some sort of Illustrator or Photoshop program, but yeah. I don't know because, you know, they were in Ukraine and we were in Austin. Yeah, and they were just um, sending you the files. They were sending us the PSD files. Okay. And, you know, it, at first it was a little bit of hard because there's a there's a technical language barrier, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then there's the actual language barrier. Right. 
And so at one point they were drawing the wrong faces on the wrong bodies and they, <laughs> they were mixing up the reference photos and Jenny, who j just had a baby, like literally had just had a C-section baby, had to jump on a phone call with these Ukrainians to like work it out. And <laughs> whatever urgency was in her voice yeah. of like, do not make me get on this phone again while I am breastfeeding. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the next thing we know, like I'm getting 15 PSD files in my email box every morning. Wow. And, you know. At that point, you know, our deadline was fast approaching. So I'm having to live with little things that I wish I could have been like, ah, can you tweak this? Can yeah. you tweak that? Yeah. And and then our and our animator in Austin was, you know, she was doing as much as she could to kind of make me happy with what I wanted the Ukrainians to fix. Um, but it all kind of came together uh, last minute. You know, our, our film festival premiere was April 11th at the Detroit Free Press Film Festival because we wanted to do a hometown thing. Yeah. But we didn't get the film put out to DCP until April 9th. Wow. Classic. Yeah. So, yeah they, they were uh, sweating a little bit because we were the opening night film and it sold like 2,500 tickets. Even better. <laughs> yeah, it'll be here. It'll be here. Everything's worked out so far. It, this will work out too. And it does. It does. I, I love that about documentary. Did you build your edit out pretty, let's call it even like a content edit, or maybe you had a fine cut? I, yeah. I don't know. Did you have your edit fairly complete, and then you then you then essentially wrote the scenes for animation and had the animation done? Or were you doing the, uh, the animation in conjunction while you were editing? It was sort of concurrently. Yeah. Um, I, we went through three editors on this film. Mm. Uh, and... I, yeah, there was basically we started with a post house in Detroit who had really only edited commercials and but they really like made a hard push and they're like, We wanna do this, we think we can do it, we can do it. And they convinced us that they could and it just it didn't work. Wow. And we were trying to make a deadline, and this is something that Werner Herzog told me at Rogue Film School, which is to never ever compromise your film to make a film festival deadline. Uh. And I listened to him anyway, and we made a mistake and we flew in an editor who just, it was a horrible situation and there was maybe some mental health issues or something going on. Mm. Um, and that turned into a whole thing. And that cause was kind of pushed just to the point where it was like, all right, let's just take this movie back to Austin where I know an editor that I want to work with. I'm, I, I don't want to work with people who are recommended to me anymore. Uh. And, but between those two phases, I had to basically build the entire assembly yeah. and, and arc the all the stories out over six weeks in my house uh, here in Detroit. Yeah, where I basically yeah. see the sunlight for those six weeks. Yeah, just so that I could have an assembly, so that we could hit the ground running once we got to Austin. Um, so it was a kind of a nightmarish uh, experience, and, and one of the most difficult summers of my life. That, that's the thing about documentary filmmaking: you have to roll with the punches. So I'm curious, I imagine you had to have been thinking or, or, or it crossed your mind, look, am I telling a story? Am I telling this story for someone who's a sports fan or am I telling this story for someone who would not necessarily normally follow sports at all? Were you having those thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think any responsible filmmaker has to think of their audience, yep. even if you're not, you know, directing the film for them. It should be in your mind a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that Werner Herzog also told us was to pick pick one person that the film was for and for me it was you know vladimir konstantinov kind of and it, it, the idea of like if he ever sees this oh, i want the human side of this film right 
the, the humanity of what him and his four countrymen did coming over here, winning the Stanley Cup and everything that happened afterwards. And so I, and that was the approach. And, you know, fortunately for me, David Fabello, my editor, is not a hockey guy. Mm, uh, so, you know, I was teaching him about the sport of hockey as we were cutting the film. Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of actually really fortuitous because it allowed us to make sure that there was enough of the sport that anyone could understand it. Right. But at, that was the limit that we had. We didn't want to overload on this, the hockey part. Yeah. Um, my favorite thing about this, this, the edit, that most people don't really notice until I point it out, is you don't see a sustained any ho- hockey highlights until like 25 minutes into the movie. Mm-hmm, for sure. And that was by choice. My, you know, the idea being that if I can get the viewer on board with this film on the human element, right? The cloak and dagger, the defections, the, the, what are the, the risks these guys are taking? What is the conflict of coming to America? By the time I get to the hockey part, even if you're not a hockey fan, you care about these characters, so you're going to go on the journey with us. Honestly, all of these guys are really incredible, and it's kind of become yeah. surreal to you know these guys who you grow up watching on TV, <laughs> uh, going to the game, cheering for them, becoming your friends. Uh, <laughs> and, and because they are so humble and they are so just regular dudes. Yeah. Um, you know, the first time I ever sang karaoke in my life was last week with Sergei Fedorov at our premiere in Moscow. <laughs> so I, mean, I hope there's video movie. footage of that. <laughs> there is on my Instagram. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I will find it. <laughs> uh, yeah. It was uh, quite an experience. I'll say we've been talking with documentary filmmaker, Joshua real his current film is The Russian Five. Joshua, what's the best way that our, our listeners can see the film? You know, right now it's on iTunes, yeah. Amazon Prime, any basically anywhere you can stream the film on VOD. Yeah, it's out, um, and it's yeah, it's it's out there. I hope people go see it and check it out because you know we put a lot of a lot of work into it. I put a lot of my year, years of my life into it. Basically, I've spent my entire thirties making this film. Incredible. And yeah, it's just something we're really proud of. Joshua, thanks so much for coming on to the documentary Life today. It's been a, uh, a very lovely and candid, fun conversation. It's been great. Thanks so much, Joshua. Thank you. I appreciate it. Don't forget, if you like our show and you want to transform your documentary filmmaking this year, we'd love to have you join us in one of our workshops. Check out our current roster by going to thedocumentarylife.com slash workshops. See you next time, Doc Lifer. Doc Lifer.